welcome to Beyond the Headline, a podcast that's put together by the Bay Area News Group, where we pull back the curtain on criminal justice stories, transparency issues, and basically just the inner workings of journalism. I'm Matthias Gaffney. I'm an investigative reporter with the Bay Area News Group. And as always, I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Robert Salonga, a crime and public safety reporter with the Mercury News. And today... We are joined by the fabulous Julia Protasilic, who is the Mercury News general assignment reporter, who I, aside from Rob, of course, consider the best writer in our news organization. So we're very happy to have her here. How are you guys doing? Great. Thanks. After that introduction. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) Great. Um, So... Uh, we're just about to start a very big chapter um, in a very tragic case out of the South Bay, um, the Sierra Lamar um, murder uh, kidnapping case is set to begin. Uh, we just had jury selection uh, beginning. As you may remember, this is a case uh, dating back four years. Uh, it was on March 16, 2012 when uh, the Morgan Hill 15-year-old disappeared on her way to a school bus stop. And since then, a 22-year-old defendant, Antoline Garcia Torres, was arrested uh, for her murder, and uh, even though no body was found. And his trial is set to begin very soon. And to summarize that for us, we have um, also spoken to our Mercury News court reporter, Tracy Kaplan, who has going to be covering this trial. Tracy Kaplan, the court reporter for the Mercury News. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you very much. So bring us up to speed as to what is happening at the moment in the in the trial. Uh, we understand jury selection is happening right now. Correct. Um, the jurors, pools of jurors are coming in and they are being given a questionnaire, 178 questions, probing everything from their attitudes about the death penalty, which is primary, to uh, if they've ever been sexually molested. I see. And, you know, we're more than four years out from when Sierra Lamar first disappeared back in March 2012. Can you walk us through some of the uh, bigger reasons why um, it's taken uh, this amount of time? Seven, uh, four years and seven months uh, after she disappeared, the trial will open with opening statements, January 3rd. The reasons for the delay, it are there are several. First of all, it's a death penalty case, and that wasn't decided until about two years after uh, Garcia Torres was arrested. Once there is a death penalty case, the whole universe and landscape legally changes. For instance, there are now two defense attorneys assigned to the case, rather than the usual one. Those defense attorneys, uh, Brian Matthews and Al Lopez, uh, who are alternate public defenders, they have to prepare extensively for a death penalty case. I mean, you want to make sure you dot all your I's and cross your T's. That's one thing. They had other murder cases they were both trying. There are 20,000 pages of documents in the case, uh, 600 compact discs, and 1,000 hours of recordings that they had to comb, make their way through. Um, They also do a background investigation to get ready for the penalty phase of the trial. Um, That, in death penalty trials, there's the guilt phase and then there's the penalty phase. 
So once, if the jury were to decide he was guilty, they would then decide between, decide whether to give him the death penalty or not, it, which is an advisory recommendation to the judge. Okay. So what have been some key rulings over the course of uh, getting to the point where we're at now? Okay, well, um, the defense tried to exclude the DNA evidence, which is very incriminating. The evidence is uh, there's her DNA in his car, including in his trunk, and on a rope in his trunk. Um, and his DNA was discovered on her clothing. So they tried to exclude that evidence. Um, they tried to move the trial out of Santa Clara County, which hadn't happened for more than 40 years and was unlikely to happen, but they made a valiant effort. Um, and to suppress uh, other incriminating evidence, such as his statement to police um, about how his sexual DNA could be on her clothing even before they brought it up themselves in the interview. Um, but the most important one was what's called severance, where the, where the defense tried to get the three attempted kidnapping charges from 2009, about three years before she disappeared, um, tried in a separate trial rather than with this trial. They failed to do that, and that evidence is incriminating because it shows allegedly a pattern of him jumping into women's cars and uh, trying to zap them or hold them at knife point or with a stun gun. And that lends credence to their theory that he may have sought, he may have done something similar to her in the sense she wasn't in a car but accosted her along the road as she made her way to a school bus stop in the unincorporated area um, near Morgan Hill. So this is one of the most high-profile cases we've seen in Santa Clara County in quite some time. What can we expect in the courtroom as far as the dynamic? Will, should we expect fireworks? Are there or is it going to be more of a procedural uh, type of uh, proceeding? Well, the answer is is both. Um, there are two excellent attorneys. Um, Brian Matthews, an alternate public defender, is very passionate against the death penalty. He, he objects to it morally, and he is going to fight super hard for this guy. David Boyd, who's a prosecutor, is veteran expert, great in court, and a hard worker, and will know every fact there is to know and, and never hesitate. Um, on the other hand, it is a procedural case. There's going to be endless droning on about DNA and transfer DNA and is the lab doing, did the lab do things right or not? The criminal uh, lab, the crime lab, who's, uh, which is a unit of the DA's office and there's a lot of controversy around uh, their procedures. So I think you'll see a lot of boring patches and then some interesting patches. The, in, the, the most interesting thing might be if he testifies. Um, and the other piece of this is that uh, the DA has indicated they're going to play um, a long recording of an interview with him um, in which he makes some incriminating statements, but the interview is long and he apparently wants the jury to hear the, more or less a lot of it. But the judge has excluded um, the press from taking photographs of the trial or filming it for TV. So as far as what the public will know about a high-profile case will be more limited than if the press was allowed to be there, you know, full-time with a camera. 
so people can check into what's happening with the with the case uh, via us, the Mercury News, which will be tweeting it from the court. Uh, other than that, there won't be a lot of visual images of the trial, and that will probably limit the coverage and how much people know about a high-profile case. And and this case comes as a uh, ballot item comes to uh, the November election in the form of Prop 62 um, that could determine the efficacy of the death penalty in the state moving forward. To what extent, if any, does that have an effect on this case uh, right now? Right. Prop 62 would repeal the death penalty. Prop 66 would uh, change some of the procedures, allegedly to uh, speed it along, because right now 750 people are sitting on death row, and very few people have been executed since 1978. Um, the effect is that um, if the death penalty were to be repealed on November 8th, um, the jury would not have to be death eligible, meaning jurors would, they wouldn't have to pick jurors who said that they were open to the death penalty. Jurors who are open to the death penalty are, uh, studies show, are more prone to find someone guilty, a little bit more harsh, perhaps. So what's happened is that the defense has tried to delay jury selection, tried to delay jury selection beyond the election. The judge didn't agree, but in the end, structured jury selection so that, in effect, the final stages won't occur until after the trial, so that if the death penalty is repealed, um, the defense will, won't have to worry about having death-eligible jurors on the, on the panel, and then suddenly the death penalty isn't, doesn't exist anymore. See, if they pick them all now and pick people who are death-eligible had to, and then it got repealed, they wouldn't be able to change the composition of the jury, adjust it. So this way, really, the jurors are being given the questionnaires, uh, they're filling them out, and then the, um, they're not coming back to be vetted through voir dire jury selection, in which the judge and others can ask questions of the jurors uh, until November 14th, after the election. Okay. And one last question. This is not unheard of, but it's rare for a murder trial to go forward without a body. Sierra still hasn't been found. I want to refer back to the 2008 case of Hans Reiser in Oakland, uh, who was convicted of first-degree murder back in uh, 2008 and uh, eventually was able to negotiate a second-degree murder uh, plea in exchange for leading authorities to the location of his wife's body. And is there any sense or any likelihood that Antolin Garcia Torres could be uh, using the same kind of uh, leverage strategy, maybe holding the location of where Sierra might be as a bargaining chip uh, in the future uh, post-trial? Yes and no. Um, he was believed to have that bargaining chip in the run-up to the decision by the DA to give him the death penalty or not to, to seek the death penalty or not. There was no deal cut then. He could have done it then and avoided this whole thing. He would have gotten life without parole. Legally, it is possible that if he were to be convicted, he could try to negotiate to have um, the DA amend the charges and, in effect, cut a plea deal for lesser charges, which would mean a shorter sentence, um, probably life without parole, I, or 25 years to life, but most likely life without parole. 
there's a lot of speculation about that in the DA's office, but most people believe, seem to believe that he is unlikely to make that offer. He's a very young guy. He's only 22. He may hope, because you lose your right to appeal. Uh, if you make a deal like that, you can't appeal the conviction. So he would, in effect, be have, have to be ready to fully accept that he's going to be stuck in prison for years and years, if not for the rest of his entire life. And people consider that unlikely. I'm also not sure that D.A. Jeff Rosen would be willing to budge. He also feels strongly that death penalty, about the death penalty, but unlike Brian Matthews, you know, he believes that in some cases it's morally correct to charge it and, I, and that he made a difficult decision in this case to do that. He's has, there's one other death penalty case in the county. Um, he's rejected it six times, but it's something he clearly thought about and I'm not willing, he, I'm not sure he would be willing to trade. Gotcha. Well, Tracy, I appreciate you coming on to the podcast. Thank you very much. So, Rob and Julia, um, this case uh, it was so tragic and it hit the South Bay so hard. What are your first memories as reporters in covering this case? Well, I remember when she was kidnapped, she was 15, and my daughter was the same age. And I think we had tried to all, as a society, program ourselves that, you know, this kind of thing, the stranger abduction, it's so rare, it's so rare. You know, you can still let your kids ride their bikes to school, walk to the bus stop. Uh, usually it's people who know each other who do bad things to each other. But this just struck a core with so many people. It was so shocking. And, of course, we all just went immediately to... What does this mean for our own lives and our own children and the safety in our own neighborhoods? Rob? This case was among the first assignments I was thrown into when I joined the Mercury News. I had been at the Contra Costa Times and had covered the infamous J.C. Dugard case, the uh, case of the uh, woman who reappeared after 18 years in captivity, uh, having been kidnapped in South Lake Tahoe a long, long time ago and had kind of broken the uh, conventional wisdom about when people are kidnapped or disappeared, uh, it, it kind of created a new sense of hope for a lot of people who had gone through the same thing. So uh, that was that was the background I was coming from. And then as soon as I joined the Mercury News, I'm back covering disappeared, uh, you know, young girls. And and you were you were brand new. This was one of your first assignments. I, right? I was brand new. One of my first story was writing about the uh, car description of uh, the eventual suspect when they were still looking for him. And uh, I was thrown into, uh, I, came, I came right around the time that Antolin Garcia Torres was arrested and was essentially dispatched down to the, to the south, south part of Santa Clara County uh, looking for any connections, ties, family members. I remember we were in touch with each other. I think we finally, I mean, he was so new, I didn't even have his cell phone number. I'm like, who's this Robert guy? And pretty soon I'm, I'm getting all these cell phone calls from him. I was taking your calls. And uh, one by one, I'm like, damn, this guy is getting great stuff. What's his name again? Why don't you talk about what you encountered along the way there? Yeah, it was, that was about the time, uh, again, this was post-arrest. And everyone was trying to scramble and string together whatever they could about the background of this uh, suspect. And so that entailed me, uh, you know, mining trailer parks all throughout, you know, Morgan Hill and Gilroy and San Martin. Uh, eventually found his mom's trailer 
you know, she wasn't talking and, you know, and, you know, we're trying to find he had a, he had a he had a girlfriend or a wife. I don't I, I still didn't find total clarity on what exactly the nature of that relationship was. And he has he had a small child. And we were so we were trying to kind of string all that together. But what Julia was talking about uh, happened to be right around the time where I camped outside of an apartment where uh, Garcia's sisters lived. And um, my persistence eventually paid off. They gave me this interview where they you know, kind of talked about, well, they, they defended him first. And then they talked about how they had gone through this life of their their father had been convicted of sexually abusing, uh, you know, some of some of his daughters. And, um, you know, so that that was that was essentially my introduction to Julia. It's like, hey, I got these family members that nobody else has. Here you go. Yeah, that was a great way to start. But of course, the case and the search had already been going on for a while. Of course, I think two months before uh, Garcia uh, Torres was arrested. I started my career in the Vallejo paper, and you guys probably both remember this. I'm sure you guys probably covered a little bit of this case, the Ziana Fairchild abduction and murder um, with Curtis Dean Anderson, and that was out of Vallejo. And it was one of my first jobs, frankly, out of college that received nationwide attention. And I remember, similar to you, Rob, I remember canvassing the neighborhood. There was these two, the, the biological mother and her boyfriend were, um, quote unquote, under a cloud of suspicion by the, um, the, the police department there at the time. And eventually they uh, were found to not be part of it. But it's, 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 it's rare in that in journalism, at least I've found that that these stranger abduction cases, often involving um, young girls, um, they get such news traction. And I think you touched on it a little bit, Julia, but maybe you guys can expand on it. Um, what is it about these cases? Um, and, and maybe it's just the fact that we can all, you know, none of us think, um, you know, we all think we're living in a bubble. And maybe it's this, this where this complete stranger can can pop that bubble and enter your life where you can relate to it. Why do you think these cases um, gather so much media attention, one, and also so much um, attention and interest from the general public? Well, I think one of the first things, of course, is the innocence of the victims. I mean, they are completely blameless, and that innocence just tugs at the heartstrings of everyone. The other thing is the want the the missing posters that are distributed all around and you just see inevitably a big smiling little girl or a, a teenager and it, it's just heartbreaking to think that this joyful presence had to endure something awful. And I think uh, that is something that really rallied with Sierra Lamar, a beautiful girl, long dark hair, beautiful smile. She was a cheerleader at her school in Morgan Hill. And she was just walking to the bus stop one morning. Her mom um, works early in the mornings, left the house around six o'clock or so to her job in Silicon Valley, about a half hour drive. And she left Sierra as she did to just walk literally about a block uh, to the bus stop. And to think that something so you know, American, shall I say, of walking to the bus stop uh, could end in such tragedy, just rallied a lot of people. And it's interesting because Sierra and her mother were new to that area. Um, she had transferred from a school in Fremont, I believe. 
So it wasn't even as though the whole community knew this family really well or went back generations. Uh, so it really was a bit of, you know, Sierra's anonymity, but it was a universal smile, a universal innocence that really galvanized the entire Bay Area. And in the very first week searching for her, 750 people showed up, including the uh, then quarterback of the 49ers, Alex Smith. So it drew people from all walks of life to help. And just to add to that, uh, it's 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 really eerie uh, the, in, in, in listening to Julia's description. Uh, like I'll refer back to the J.C. Dugard case. She was on the way to the bus stop when Philip and Nancy Garrido tased her and th- took her into a car and drove away and, you know, then took her to Antioch in East Contra Costa County. And she was there in captivity for 18 years. And it's the idea, I think, that really um, this is people's worst fear. When we talk about crime and public safety, uh, we're all fairly experienced in covering, you know, this issue. And we all know that the vast majority of crimes are committed by people who know each other. And so the idea of the random victim is is actually it, when you when you break down all the numbers, it's a statistical rarity. Um, and so, um, you know, this is when I say pe- this is people's worst fear. Usually, you can explain a lot of a crime away as to you know failed relationships or bad bad life choices, that sort of thing. Like Julia said, children are blameless, and it's the ra- it's the random targeting nature of it. I think that really. Um, you know, sends a shock to the system. It's this idea that um, usually, again, you can explain other things away. Like if I don't do that, this won't happen to me. If I don't get in with that crowd, this won't happen to me. If I don't, you know, make that choice, this won't happen to me. The idea that you could be minding your own business, living your life perfectly fine and perfectly, you know, right. And this have still have this happen to you. I think that's what really resonates with people and why these types of stories have so much uh, psychological and emotional impact when, you know, very few of us actually knew Sierra. And I've, I've been covering these types of cases. I've always kind of found it interesting um, how victims' families are just thrown into the limelight um, overnight. And you constantly hear, and I know they're, you know, in talking to them, they're always told, the more you can keep this in the media, the better chance of finding your loved one. So they're almost forced into holding press conferences, forced into talking on camera to kind of keep their child's story out there. And I'm wondering, you guys probably um, were attending press conferences and searches um, involving Sierra Lamar. Tell me a little bit about that dynamic that you saw out there. I mean, it's got to be difficult for them to hold these searches where you're essentially looking for evidence or maybe even a body, which is, I can't imagine, but then also just balancing that with holding out hope um, for finding their loved one alive. Um, Just tell me a little bit about what you encountered uh, in the Sierra Lamar case. Well, I got to know Sierra's mother, Marlene, who I think is a reserved, shy woman by nature. And she really had to come out of her shell and you know, put herself out there. And I think, you know, any mother um, in any effort to find her daughter would do the same, but it, it took a lot for her to do that. Um, One of the things I remember really broke my heart was 
the press conference that Sheriff Lori Smith had the day after they arrested uh, Garcia Torres. And she stood there with all the media and all the cameras. There was Sheriff Smith. And Marlene Lamar was standing um, to the side. And the sheriff had to say, we believe this man not only kidnapped Sierra, but killed her. And even though they didn't have any blood evidence or anybody, the sheriff kept saying she's confident that uh, Sierra is no longer living. And I just remember looking at Marlene and any time the sheriff said that she just shook her head like, no, no, no. And it was the most powerful nonverbal defiance and hope of a mother um, to not want to go there. And I think the sheriff talked about, and I think we know that most people that are abducted or children that are abducted don't live any longer than three and a half hours. I mean, on average after something like that and not knowing all the details that the sheriff had, it was hard to believe, but I think you're right, Robert, the JC Dugard case gave people hope. But at at the other hand, there's cases that are devastating like, you know, the Ziana Fairchild and Polly Klaas, who was abducted from, her own bedroom in 1993 by Richard Allen Davis. And that just strikes fear into everyone's heart as well. So it's really hard for parents indeed. So this case is rare in that it's going to trial um, with no body has been found. And there's obviously legal issues at play here. Um, Do you think this is going to play any any role in, in the legal case and, and just in general with, um, you know, um, will we ever truly find, um, her body or, um, if there is a body, uh, how do you think that rare factor, um, will play going forward? I think that as, as Tracy Kaplan had said in the earlier segment, it's, um, it's 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 going to go forward because they feel like they have enough DNA evidence and other uh, material that was found. You know, for instance, in Garcia Torres's car. Um, you know, it's as but as far as how that how that could play in the future, like like we had said earlier. You know, you have the Hans Reiser case from two thousand eight, where you know that was held as a eventually I was held as a bargaining chip for for a, for a lesser sentence. Whether that happens here, it's 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 hard it's hard to say. Um, but the the prevailing theory by authorities is that is that she's dead. Otherwise, they wouldn't have moved forward with the with the case they have. I think if they had any inkling that she might be alive, I think the efforts would be uh, geared toward that. But we're almost five years out. It's 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 tough to it's tough to uh, imagine a scenario. Um, in which she she might be found uh, alive. But I think one of the things that's especially difficult, uh, you know, granted he hasn't been tried yet, but just the notion that if he did in fact kill Sierra and he's in jail, that he won't say where she is. I mean, I think it it devastates all these people who've been searching to think that they are searching high and low in gullies. Even to this day, people have have sworn that they will look uh, until she is found. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if some of these 
loyal searchers are, are still looking on their weekends or time off. But to think that they are just going on these circuitous paths um, out there in the hills and dales, and there's somebody who actually knows who might be sitting in a jail cell. And I uh, remember asking Sheriff Smith, well, you've got the guy. Can't you can't you get get him to just tell you where the the body is if in fact, you know, he's guilty? And she said, um, she said he's not going to confess. We've used every technique that was legal and he did not confess. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things that makes it so difficult. And another thing, this case has had has been so enduring because there was a body that was found. Do you remember this, Robert? This was back in February, down in the same area, right. just around Gilroy. It was found right off of Highway 101 in this thicket of, of brush and very decomposed. And we got the news, the, the alert at 7 o'clock in the morning that a body had found. I went tearing down there. What was everyone asking? Is it Sierra? Is it Sierra? Right. And that's we've been on Sierra alert here at the Mercury News pretty much since she's gone missing. So any time an unexplained body had been found in the in the general area of South Santa Clara County, the initial question is, is is it Sierra? So we we have gone through a lot of uh, false leads and false starts just because, um, you know, of the resonance that this has had in the community. So, you know, for four or four over four years. Anytime, uh, you know, a body's been found in like, you know, underbrush or in a remote area, uh, even even out of county. I mean, there have been cases where, you know, we, we got a, a news alert about a body found in San Benito County. And, you know, I'm, I'm sent to go find out if it may or may not be Sierra. And the authorities have been kind of clued into that, too, because every time a similar situation pops up, they're, they're unchar- uncharacteristically saying, we don't believe this is Sierra Lamar, just like from from the outset, because they don't want the cascade and onslaught of media to descend upon them, you know, on the just general premise that it might be her. So that's it's been on people's minds and it's stayed on people's minds. Like Julia said, it's endured, uh, you know, ever since she went missing. I remember having to make uh, that call on the case um, to Sierra's mother on that that day when the other body was found at the, in the brush, but we didn't know whose it was and could it have been Sierra Lamar's. And so to make that call to her, just to think of what she was going through, the anticipation, the dread, the fear, the anguish, and here's, you know, oh, you know, Mercury News calling or CBS, ABC, um, I thought, God, this poor woman. And I have to say, um, that's one call I was, I hate to say this as a reporter, but hoping she wouldn't answer because I thought, God, this poor woman. Um, in fact, it was her answering machine and I left a very apologetic uh, message to even call her. But, you know, I've had to do a lot of these kinds of knocking on doors and making phone calls, you know, in my 30 years. And there have been a lot of places I've been where you don't want to ask those questions. But let me tell you, trying to reach Marlene Lamar that morning sticks out with me as one mother to another, one human being to another. Yeah, I, I this case just, um, for me personally as a father, 
this case and those like it just are so tragic and they, they just i i loathe covering them and i loathe having to make those same calls and just reporting on them um it's just dealing with the families is is just really hard and i can't imagine what they they go through and still are going through well rob and julie i really appreciate you joining us uh today for another episode of beyond the headline and uh for those listeners out there if you have any ideas for future episodes please contact us we're open to uh suggestions as this goes forward and stay tuned for the next episode coming up and if you'd like to get in touch with us um julia's twitter account is at julia sulik robert's twitter account is at robert salonga and mine is at m gaffney so rob julia thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time thanks a lot thanks guys 